There have been a few new books that have come out recently speculating again on who wrote Shakespeare's plays. And in fact, back in March of 2023, I had a podcast conversation with Michael Chiklis about who his preferred candidate was. Well, my RSE partner, Reed Martin, and I covered all of this back in 2006 in our book, Reduced Shakespeare, The Complete Guide for the Attention Impaired Abridged. And in this week's podcast, I'll read that chapter to you. Strap in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 863, Who Wrote Shakespeare? Reduced Shakespeare, The Complete Guide for the Attention Impaired Abridged, by Reed Martin and Austin Titchener. Chapter 5. Who Wrote This Stuff? For every expert, there is an equal and opposite expert. Arthur C. Clarke. Let's play another round of unconventional wisdom, shall we? The conventional wisdom, there's very little evidence that William Shakespeare wrote the plays attributed to him. The reduced wisdom, there is almost no evidence that Shakespeare wrote the plays attributed to him. Oh sure, most people take it for granted that they were written by the bard of Stratford-upon-Avon because that's what we've been told for hundreds of years. Shakespeare's name is printed on the title page of the first folio. Why would everybody say it if it wasn't true? Trouble is, there are more jokes about the authorship of Shakespeare's plays than there is solid evidence that he wrote them. Nature abhors a vacuum. In the absence of definitive, irrefutable proof that William Shakespeare actually wrote the plays that bear his name, entire cottage industries have grown up setting out to prove that somebody else wrote them. The leading candidates are Sir Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, William Stanley, Earl of Derby, Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, and Christopher Marlowe. There are many others. While some people graciously concede that Shakespeare might have written his own plays, the above-named candidates are those who have the largest international financing and the greatest array of scholars and nutjobs behind them. Critics of authorship theorists complain these anti-Stratfordians are iconoclasts and mischief-makers, ignoring the fact that iconoclasm and mischief-making are in the highest Shakespearean spirit. Shakespeare's plays are rich in deception and disguise. Shakespeare himself, whoever he was, even seems to toy with the authorship mystery in both Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy, and Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word was smell as sweet. There's more going on here than any of you know, Shakespeare or Bacon, or Marlowe, or whoever, seems to be hinting, and the author's name doesn't matter as long as the plays still smell, which some of them do. Let's briefly consider the leading candidates and examine their lives, their motives for hiding their identities, and the odds that one of these men indeed wrote the plays and sonnets of William Shakespeare. Sir Francis Bacon 1561 to 1626. Francis Bacon was a lawyer, statesman, historian, natural scientist, and philosopher. 
One of the arguments against Shakespeare as author is that as a simple country landowner who lacked formal and verifiable education, there's no way he could so accurately portray the many philosophies and occupations that appear in the plays. Bacon, on the other hand, who declared all knowledge to be his province, is the one candidate who had the wide range of specialized knowledge that could have informed Shakespeare's writings. Bacon was also gay, which aside from being a virtual guarantee that he'd work in the theater, was also presumably something he'd wished to hide. Bacon's homosexuality would satisfy those who insist that Shakespeare's sonnets reveal the author's love for a man— and a life in the Elizabethan theater filled with petty thieves and prostitutes being basically almost the same disreputable business it is today, is something a man of Bacon's stature would definitely want to conceal. Finally, and most convincingly of all, the word Bacon means literally little ham, which is another way of saying, wait for it, Hamlet. We rest our case. Odds that Bacon wrote Shakespeare? 50 to 1. Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, 1550-1604. The first man to argue that the 17th Earl of Oxford wrote the works of William Shakespeare was the unfortunately named J. Thomas Looney. Looney believed that fiction is autobiography, and because what little is known of Shakespeare's life doesn't seem to have informed the plays or sonnets in the slightest, Looney found a guy whose life did. Like Hamlet, Edward de Vere was a high-born man at court who lost his father and felt dispossessed by the man who married his mother. Like Bertram in All's Well That Ends Well, and like many of the fallen aristocrats in Shakespeare's plays, de Vere was a wayward nobleman caught in an unhappy marriage who traveled abroad and then returned home. Like Bottom in Midsummer, de Vere had the head of a donkey, and like Caliban in The Tempest, de Vere was discovered at his autopsy to also be a mooncalf the autobiographical parallels are eerie. Even more convincing is the discovery of De Vere's copy of The Bible, which now belongs to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. It's actually filled with hundreds of markings, highlighted words, and underlined passages in De Vere's own hand, many of which can be also found in Shakespeare's works. This would appear to be what we historians call evidence, one of Shakespeare's actual resources. One can imagine this copy of the Bible sitting on Shakespeare's writing table, occasionally being flipped through as the great author searched for the perfect phrase or devastating bon mot. It's particularly exciting to those frustrated by the fact that William Shakespeare of Stratford left behind no writings in his own hand, no first drafts, no notes or scrawled-out passages, no heavily marked copies of the books he was stealing all his best stuff from, not even any letters to his loved ones or his family. Nothing, in fact, not one single solitary scrap of paper to indicate he was a writer at all, or indeed could even read. Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, at least leaves a tiny paper trail. And, most convincing of all, is de Vere's coat of arms, which depicts a lion shaking a broken spear. Get it? A shake spear. We call that a smoking gun, my friends. Sorry, did we say most convincing? We meant most silly. Odds that Edward de Vere wrote Shakespeare's plays? 20 to 1. William Stanley, Earl of Derby, 1561 to 1642. 
The authorship question is one of history's great controversies, so naturally it involves the French. Professor Abel Lefranc of the College of France was a respected authority on Rabelais, Moliere, and the literature of the 17th and 18th centuries. Like the giggle-inducing Tom Looney, Lefranc concluded that, unlike every single writer ever known to have existed, there is no relationship between Shakespeare's life and his works. But unlike Looney, Lefranc was a well-respected literary scholar and wasn't laughed right out of the patisserie. We won't even mention the French radicals who tie up traffic all over Europe, claiming that Shakespeare is simply an anglicization of the true author's French name, Jacques-Pierre. Lefranc found a man whose life did seem to inform at least two of Shakespeare's plays, William Stanley, the sixth Earl of Derby. Who the hell is that, you cry? And you're absolutely right. History is filled with people you've never heard of, and every single one of them lived a life more recorded and better documented than the famous William Shakespeare. It's maddening. Stanley was an aristocrat who studied law and is known to have spent about five years in Europe in the 1580s, where he killed a man in a duel in Spain and traveled extensively in France. But what really seals the deal is that an Englishman is known to have visited the court of Navarre in France, observing and participating in events that mirror exactly the action in Love's Labors Lost. For Lefranc and others who think like him, that Englishman was almost undoubtedly William Stanley. According to John Mitchell, the author of Who Wrote Shakespeare, best overview yet of the authorship controversy, Washington Post, the only difference between the play and what really happened is that Shakespeare, or Stanley, changed the King of Navarre's name from Henri to Ferdinand, the name of Stanley's older brother, as it happens, and the visitor to the court became the daughter of the king in the play rather than his real-life estranged wife, a princess, in other words, instead of a queen. The play also contains the character of Hollow Furnace, a ridiculously pedantic schoolmaster who is a spot-on caricature of Stanley's tutor and chaperone. This, as well as dozens of other specific details, make many scholars feel that the events from Love's Labor's Lost were observed from life by William Stanley rather than merely imagined by somebody else. The Tempest also matches the details of Stanley's life. The brave new world that Miranda mentions has often been taken to mean America, indicating that Sir Walter Raleigh was the inspiration for Prospero and possibly the author of Shakespeare's plays, but let's not even go there. But the rocky crag of Prospero's island more closely resembles the Calf of Man, located just off the coast of the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland. The Calf of Man is a mile wide, filled with caves, inlets, and fresh water, and has caused many shipwrecks over the years. It's exactly the way Prospero's island is described in The Tempest. So what, you ask? So this. William Stanley was the hereditary king of the Isle of Man, ruling it jointly with the Countess of Derby by governmental decree. Who else would know or could describe the uninhabited calf of man better? And, as has already been mentioned, Stanley's older brother Ferdinando has the exact same name, almost, of the prince who marries Prospero's daughter. And the dedication of the first folio is signed with the initials W.S., which obviously stand for William Stanley. What other name could those initials possibly stand for? Is all this evidence incredibly circumstantial that is persuasive, or what? It's what. Odds that William Stanley wrote Shakespeare's plays, 10 to 1. (laughs) 
Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, 1576 to 1612. Why do all the candidates have to be earls is the logical question, and we're tired of hearing it. The answer is because the most critical Shakespearean scholars, sorry, we mean iconoclastic anti-Stratfordians, insist that in order to write about so many aristocrats and educated people, Shakespeare must have been one himself. Textual clues tell us that the author of Shakespeare's plays had a classical education, probably from Cambridge. Hey, you know what? Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, went to Cambridge, as did Bacon and Oxford. A common theme in Shakespeare's plays is two brothers who hate each other. Hey, you know what? Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, hated his brothers and confiscated the lands of one of them, just as Oliver did to Orlando in As You Like It. Every Shakespeare scholar, even the Orthodox Stratfordians, believes that the author must have traveled throughout Europe and spent extensive time in Italy. Hey, you know what? Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, studied at Padua University in addition to Cambridge. But we saved the best for last. The author of Hamlet must have gone to Denmark. It's described too accurately for someone to simply have made up the details. Well, you know what? Roger Manners, Earl of Rutland, went to Denmark. He headed up an English delegation to Denmark under James I, visited Elsinore Castle, and, and had two classmates at Padua University named, drumroll please, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Absolutely true, according to John Mitchell and who wrote Shakespeare. Complete and utter bollocks, our words not his, according to Bertram Fields in Players. Shoot. Every party has a pooper. The problem with Rutland, however, and it's a big one, is that Venus and Adonis, as well as four of Shakespeare's plays, were written before Rutland was 20 years old. In other words, Rutland would have had to be a genius, a child prodigy. Well, that's ridiculous. We can accept William Shakespeare as an uneducated landowner whose genius sprang forth extempore from his mother wit, but Roger Manners? That's just crazy talk. Odds that Roger Manners wrote Shakespeare's plays? 70 to 1. Christopher Marlowe, 1564 to 1593. The biggest question advocates have to answer in putting forth their respective candidates for authorship is why? Why did Bacon, Oxford, Darby, Rutland have to hide their great genius? Why were they forced to create an elaborate conspiracy to have their plays produced and published under a false identity? Why wouldn't they all stand up proudly and proclaim, I am Spartacus, I mean Shakespeare? The answer is pretty much, well, the theater's a disreputable business, I'm far too well-bred to be seen associated with that crowd, I don't want to embarrass my family, I'm gay, I'm a nobleman, I'm a gay nobleman, you know, stuff like that. Christopher Marlowe is the only candidate with an answer, and it's a great one, as to why he would hide his genius and participate in an elaborate conspiracy. Why? Because Marlowe was dead. Marlowe was killed in a Deptford Tavern brawl in 1593. Or was he? John Mitchell, the author of Who Wrote Shakespeare, calls Marlowe the professional candidate because Marlowe's the only possible author of Shakespeare's plays who really was a playwright himself and not a, quote, noble dilettante. But Mitchell misses the double meaning of the word professional, or does he, because Marlowe was something else. Marlowe was also a professional spy. At some point while he was at Cambridge, hey, look who else went to Cambridge, Marlowe became a member of, cue the James Bond music, 
Her Majesty's Secret Service. Before he graduated, Marlowe left school and entered a Jesuit seminary in Reims, which was a hotbed of Catholic intrigue against Queen Elizabeth, a Protestant. His secret mission was apparently to report on potential plots against the Queen, but it was assumed that Marlowe himself was engaged in treasonous activities. Consequently, Cambridge withheld Marlowe's degree. But the Cambridge authorities received an extraordinary letter from the Privy Council, the Queen's Cabinet. The Council's letter said that, quote, In all his actions, Marlowe had behaved himself orderly and discreetly, whereby he had done Her Majesty good service and deserved to be rewarded for his faithful dealing, and that... It was not Her Majesty's pleasure that anyone employed as he had been in matters touching the benefit of his country should be defamed by those that are ignorant in the affairs he went about. The details are vague, but one thing is certain. Only sinister conspiratorial men could spell that badly. But Marlowe got his degree. He also continued to make enemies on pretty much every level of English society. He hung with a vast, free-thinking crowd that included Sir Walter Raleigh and debated many of the issues of the day, including those which, like religion, were forbidden. Marlowe's pronouncements as part of his clique brought him a summons to appear immediately before the Court of Star Chamber in London under the charge of atheism. This was not good news. Charges of atheism and blasphemy had a way of becoming punishable by death under the more general heading of treason, and the Star Chamber was not above torturing its defendants to get whatever information they needed. That's, in fact, how they got Marlowe's name. They tortured his friend and fellow playwright Thomas Kidd to obtain it. But Marlowe had at least one powerful friend, Thomas Walsingham, who was the cousin of the creator of the Queen's Secret Service, Sir Francis Walsingham, and something of a master spy himself. Walsingham's been described as Marlowe's patron and sometimes his employer. They were definitely roommates, so it's probably not too far off to call them boyfriends. In any event, they must have been very close because somehow Marlowe was released on bail and not, as Thomas Kidd had been, sent to prison and stretched on the rack. His trial was set to begin on June 1st. On May 30th, the day before his trial, Marlowe was killed in a tavern brawl, apparently in a dispute over who was going to pay the check. Yeah, sure. Marlowe attacked somebody over a few pence the day before he was going on trial for his life. There are other problems. The tavern, as described in the coroner's report, was actually a respectable house owned by Dame Eleanor Bull, whose sister was the goddaughter of Queen Elizabeth's nanny. If that doesn't reek of privilege and evil, what does? The four men involved in this brawl were all employed by or associated with master spy Thomas Walsingham. Ingram Freiser, the man who stabbed Marlowe immediately resumed working for Walsingham, even though he had just killed Walsingham's dear friend and admired poet. There's no way Oswald could have got off that many rounds from a single-action rifle. Not even highly trained army sharpshooters can do that. Oh, sorry, wrong conspiracy. In any event, the story of Marlowe's death, like a paper rowboat, doesn't hold water. Neither the facts of the case nor the logic of the official explanation make any sense. And then there's the textual evidence. Many scholars, including boring, non-conspiracy-loving ones, acknowledge the influence Marlowe must have had on the young William Shakespeare. 
Others note the possibility that Marlowe wrote some or all of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, Richard II, Richard III, and the three parts of Henry VI. Still others further claim that Marlowe wrote the Comedy of Errors, much of Henry V, the balcony scene of Romeo and Juliet, and every fourth word of Troilus and Cressida. These people are referred to as nuts. However, there's a sound technical basis for the claim that Marlowe wrote Shakespeare's plays, as well as statistical evidence to back it up. In the 19th century, Dr. Thomas Mendenhall, a noted physicist who served as president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, devised a method whereby an author's individual writing style could be charted and drawn on a graph. Mendenhall's goal was to determine an author's unconscious, inherent, and unchanging predisposition toward using anywhere from 1 to 15 letter words. Mendenhall counted every letter of every word written by Shelley, Keats, Sir Walter Scott, William Thackeray, and Lord Byron by hand. This was B.C., remember, before computers. The tests were compared and analyzed. The result? No two authors are alike. The conclusion? No two authors will, mechanically, unconsciously, write identically. Word of Mendenhall's conclusions spread, and he was asked to apply his method in order to prove that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays. In order to create a large enough sample, Mendenhall counted, again, B.C., every letter of every word written by Bacon, Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, Goldsmith, Beaumont, Fletcher, Marlowe, Lytton, and Addison. Who? Lytton? Addison? Doesn't matter. Mendenhall discovered that Shakespeare's vocabulary consisted of words averaging four letters in length. Big deal. Playwright David Mamet uses a lot of four-letter words, too. But Shakespeare's four-letter word average was something Mendenhall had never seen before in any other writer. Bacon, for example, used much longer words, and every other writer had his own average word length and unique stylistic oddities. The Baconian who hired Mendenhall was very disappointed. But then, as Mendenhall reported... It was in the counting and plotting of the plays of Christopher Marlowe, however, that something akin to a sensation was produced. In the characteristic curve of his plays, Christopher Marlowe agrees with Shakespeare as well as Shakespeare agrees with himself. In the words of Shakespearean scholar Scooby-Doo, Ruh? According to Mendenhall, Marlowe and Shakespeare have the exact same literary fingerprint something no two authors subjected to the same scientific scrutiny have ever demonstrated. And here's another fun fact. Marlowe died on May 30th, 1593. The name William Shakespeare made its very first appearance in connection with a dramatic work only four months later in September 1593, when Venus and Adonis was registered, as all books are, were required to be, at the stationer's office, sort of an Elizabethan copyright office. And many of the scholars who conclude Shakespeare must have spent time in Italy believe he probably went there in, ta-da, 1593. So here's what probably happened. Marlowe was a spy for Queen Elizabeth's government. His work was so valuable to Her Majesty that the Privy Council interceded in order for him to get his degree. His free-thinking intellectual ways ultimately made him a liability. His friend-slash-lover Thomas Walsingham arranged both the murder of Marlowe and the speediest inquest and acquittal in the history of Elizabethan jurisprudence so that Marlowe could escape to Italy and continue to write the plays and sonnets that fueled his soul, which he then gradually had produced and published under the name of the sometime actor and Stratford landowner William Shakespeare. It may not be the most convincing of the various theories presented here, but it's definitely the coolest. 
We suppose it's possible that Marlowe was murdered by Walsingham's men simply because he was becoming an embarrassment and a political liability, but where's the fun in that? We're from the Oliver Stone School. We prefer a ridiculously far-fetched conspiracy every time. Odds that Christopher Marlowe wrote Shakespeare's plays? A hundred to one. Odds if you accept that Marlowe faked his own death, which should be easy because you already accept one of two equally outlandish possibilities. A, that an uneducated Stratford landowner wrote the greatest dramatic literature in the history of language. Or B, a vast Elizabethan cabal conspired to hide the identity of the man who truly wrote the greatest dramatic literature in the history of language. Even money. And what of William Shakespeare? What about the possibility that Shakespeare wrote all those keen plays and nifty sonnets himself? Good question. William Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616. There is just the tiniest bit of evidence to support this craziest of all theories, that someone named William Shakespeare actually wrote the works of William Shakespeare. And that's a little thing we like to call logic. First of all, while conspiracies are fun, they're difficult to keep quiet. Dozens, if not hundreds of Elizabethans would have been in on the charade, and so would their families and descendants. Not one of them has ever mentioned anything, we asked. If Shakespeare didn't write these plays, it's the best-kept secret in history. Second, isn't there evidence that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare? Well, his name's on the first folio, the first collection of his plays that was published only seven years after his death. His picture appears there, too. That seems evidential. And third, apparently everyone he worked with professionally knew he wrote the plays. In fact, it was two longtime colleagues, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, who compiled and edited the first folio. And famed playwright Ben Jonson, a friend and colleague of the Bard, wrote a glowing tribute to Shakespeare as an introduction to the book. Then there's a little matter of the monument in Stratford. Evidently, the people in Shakespeare's hometown believed he wrote the plays. Shortly after his death, they built an elaborate marble and limestone monument to Shakespeare in the Church of the Holy Trinity. In In Search of Shakespeare, Michael Wood points out that the plays contain, to use some highly technical academic jargon, lots and lots of Warwickshire phrases and spelling. And where were we? Sixth, if you play the Beatles' Revolution Number no. 9 from the White Album backward, which is much more difficult with a CD now than it was with an LP, you can distinctly hear the words, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. But despite all this blazingly clear evidence, some people simply won't accept the obvious. They've been searching for digging for hundreds of years, desperate to prove that someone else wrote Shakespeare's plays, and they have yet to find a smoking gun. These folks are evidently smoking something else entirely. Odds that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare's plays? Even money. So who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Well, this book is testament to the fact that Shakespeare's won the day. Entire industries, British tourism, publishing houses, and Shakespeare companies from the royal to the reduced all depend on the strength and survival of that precious illusion. As William Shakespeare himself put it so magnificently in his screenplay for The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yes, there are lots of facts, much evidence, not all of it, unfortunately, in Shakespeare's favor, many theories and endless suppositions as to who wrote the works of Shakespeare. Anyone arrogant enough to claim that only one verdict is possible from all the available evidence is a fool.
for surely there's only one verdict possible from all the available evidence. William Shakespeare was a time traveler from the future, a strange visitor from another century with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. William Shakespeare, armed with poetic and dramatic works so ingenious and transporting they changed the world. William Shakespeare, who left his rough drafts and discarded scenes at his home in the distant future, and who, when he departed the early 17th century, took his original manuscripts back to his own time, a time so far ahead we haven't reached it yet, thus explaining why we have yet to discover a single manuscript or page bearing his signature or any of his brilliant writings in his own genius hand. You wait. It's the only possible solution. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your cockamamie theories via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw a comment to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com or visit my website, theshakespeareance.com. Thanks, as always, to noble dilettante Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Michael Nelson. No reason, it's just random. As always, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 863 2589ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.